It's official. The Metropolitan Police is a racist institution. It's also misogynistic and homophobic, and as a result, its officers, quote, can no longer presume that they have the permission of the people of London to police them. That's according to this week's landmark report commissioned by the Met from Baroness Louise Casey following the kidnap, rape and murder of Sarah Everard in 2021. Casey is unequivocal in her report. Public consent is broken, she says. In a squirming response, Sir Mark Rowley, the force's commissioner since September, accepted this was the case, but refused to describe the problem as institutional, instead blaming bad apples or toxic individuals. Perhaps no amount of reports, resignations or unconscious bias workshops can ever be enough to change the police. Perhaps the problem goes deeper, into policing itself, and the extraordinary powers that officers wield in the line of duty. In fact, police power is virtually limitless. Rather than upholding the law of the land, officers spend the vast majority of their time fabricating the social order. Or at least, that's what Professor Mark Neoclius told James Butler on Navarra FM back in April 2021. In the wake of the Casey report, we're reposting that conversation as a primer on the dizzying scope of police power that Everard's killing, as well as the pandemic, brought into sharp relief and the economic underpinnings of the call for abolition. Of course I'm dangerous. I'm police. I'm police. I'm police. Can do terrible things to people. Blue devils, blood-seeking vermin, blue bottle force, a little band of tyrants, a plague of blue locusts. Those were just some of the epithets in the radical press that greeted attempts to establish a new police force for the north of England back in the 1840s, understood as thinly disguised soldiers and hated for their work in suppressing workers' organisation and their encroachments on liberties like free association and simple enjoyment of life outside of work, there is a long but forgotten tradition of scepticism and hostility to the exercise of police power in Britain. You are listening to Navarra FM here on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's finest radio station. I am James Butler. Police are on the political agenda more than ever. Out of the miserable, racist violence of America's police, there has arisen the first serious movement in decades to ask questions about their purpose and even to raise the question of abolition. That has been less the case here in Britain, though perhaps that's changing with police power much clearer during the pandemic uh, and especially its crushing of the vigil for Sarah Everard, uh, a woman murdered by a serving police officer just a couple of weeks ago. And yet, it's sometimes difficult to get a grip on what police power is and what it's for. Here in Britain, you might look at the founding of the Metropolitan Police in 1829 as a key moment prompted uh, at least partly by a crisis precipitated by the use of the military to directly police the working class. 
But its roots in police science go back much further. Even the word might suggest something to us. Police, from the same root as politics or policy, intimately connected with the idea of government, the idea of the state. And is it an accident that the police emerge at the same time as the modern order of property and from the pen of economic thinkers who seek a total science of human social life? You might well look around and ask, is there any limit to police power? We're going to answer some of those questions today, but before we do, here's something else that fits. Today is the 42nd anniversary of the death of Blair Peach, a teacher killed by police violence on an anti-racism demonstration in Southall in 1979. A conspiracy of silence among police officers and a deep unwillingness on the part of the state to properly investigate those who do its bidding means no one has ever faced prosecution for his death. Uh, The current inquiry into undercover policing, which includes most famously and most horrifically the cases of women abused by undercover officers and most of those women who have entirely lost any faith that this inquiry would be anything like adequate to the task, less inquiry than cover-up. The judge there is due to read a tribute to Peach today. Hypocrisy? Ludicrous and repulsive posturing? No, just the British state. Let's talk about the police then. I knew exactly who to turn to to figure out some of these questions. Uh, My name is Mark Nelklaus. I teach in the Department of Social and Political Sciences at Brunel University, London. Um, And the title of the book that we are talking about is A Critical Theory of Police Power, which is a new edition of a a book that was first published 20 years before with with a different title, which is The Fabrication of Social Order. I think maybe actually we should talk a little bit just to, at the beginning because so, so the, the preface to the new work is the, the, the new edition is really substantial and I guess it, it, it's not so often that I get to speak to someone who's been you know who, who, who's revisiting a text after 20 years and so maybe before we get into the argument of the book proper I mean do you have a sense of how the kind of critical and, and political approaches to, to the police have changed in, in the last couple of decades if at all? Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know about the last couple of decades, but obviously the last uh, year or two has been a phenomenal um, development in approaches to the police. Um, Prior to that, there were several of us who were articulating arguments about imagining a world beyond police or police abolition, but we were generally regarded as a kind of lunatic fringe Um, And something bizarre happened, as you know, in the last uh, 15 or so months, which is that suddenly uh, that went from being the lunatic fringe to being discussed on mainstream television, um, which is which is which is quite amazing. Um, And that has generated the very kinds of questions that I always wanted to ask in in the the original edition of the book and the, the new edition, which is. Which is which are questions along the lines of you know why does the police exist you know how has it come to exist in the form that it that it has that it does um, and how do we connect questions of police power to broader questions of state power capital and so forth you know how do we how might we organise outside of police which is of course a different question which I don't ask in the book. So, I mean, usually when we, we talk about the police, like the, the standard historical account is to, is to go to 1829, right, and say, okay, this is when we start talking about police. This is when we really start thinking about the police. Your account obviously goes back a lot further, and, and you, you sort of locate 
the emergence of the police um, in its broadest sense really is, is part of the emergence of capitalist modernity itself. So my, my first couple of questions are really about that. So what, what are we talking about when we talk about police power? So as you know, the idea that I like to talk about is police power and not so much the police. Um, and there's a reason for that, um, it, which is that I want to situate the police forces in a kind of wider argument about policing in more, in much more general terms, um, and in particular in terms of of how the state organizes uh, organizes civil society. Um, the problem we're talking about um, the police solely, without thinking about police power in general terms, is that. People get very hooked up, very connected to questions of crime control, law enforcement. Um, and this kind of presupposes a certain notion of police and a certain idea about what policing is about, what policing is for. Obviously, that's facilitated enormously by the way the media functions, both in terms of um, news items about police but also, of course, in terms of uh, entertainment and cop shows and the like, you know, and this focus on on crime control and law enforcement and makes us think that policing is precisely about that. But if you look at the research on kind of what the police do, you'll find that actually it spends a remarkably small amount of time on questions of crime, questions questions of law, um, the research is quite remarkable. It looks at you know how police officers actually spend their time, you know how many arrests they make, um, and it's it, the the numbers here are incredibly small. Um, you know the idea that police officers spend you know around about ten percent of their time on traditional kind of questions of law um, just is 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 quite stunning, um, and that begs the question then of what is it the police are doing? And I don't think we can understand what the police are doing without having a broader idea of what I like to call the police power. Obviously, that's not to say, I should stress, that that means that the idea of crime control, the idea of law enforcement is is unimportant, because obviously it's not, but it's important in ways that I don't think people often realise. It's important as a, as a, a legitimising process um, around what the police actually do. In other words, the idea that the police, the police exist in order for crime control, in order to enforce the law, is precisely what legitimizes police activities within the broader process of policing, uh, policing civil society, policing social order. So the question then is, well, why the police power? And what I think the police power does as an idea rather than simply the police does is it points to something beyond simply crime control law enforcement and it points to the idea that what police are doing is less and less enforcing law and much more enforcing order. In other words, what the police are doing is part and parcel of what police power exists to do, which is to, and here's the phrase that I like to use, is, is to fabricate the social order, is to, is to create a social order and to ensure that that social order is constantly uh, recreated. The question then is, what kind of order are we talking about? And that, again, requires us to, to think more generally about the police power 
which is that it's an order of of private property. Um, it's an order that means that the whole discourse of crime and law is actually uh, a way of facilitating policing to create and recreate an org- order organized around uh, dispossession, exploitation, and accumulation. So in relation to your question, to go back to it in terms of the history prior to 1829, and obviously 1829 is important for the way policing is understood, um, the, 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 the importance of going back to that history is that, is that we can then start doing two things. On the one hand, we can start thinking about police power in this broader sense of order, order fabrication, order creation, order recreation, without getting sidetracked by the professional police forces that emerge in 1829. But the other thing I think that enables us to do is, is it enables us to then start thinking about the importance of the police power to the development of capitalism historically. And that's where my interest lies. You quote various writers as saying, you know, the objects which it embraces are in some sense indefinite, right? That the, the police power is, is this, this thing that kind of, you know, this almost amorphous force that can enter sort of social life at any point and indeed is, is you know, comprehends all of that. Do you think it's worthwhile to, to make a kind of distinction between like the specific kinds of power exercised by police forces and sort of other forms of state intervention in social life, you know, corporate as well as individual? Because, I mean, there's one thread in, in your work which, which is picking up the, this, this question really about, about whether it's possible, whether at the borders between it's possible to distinguish between police power and other forms of sort of state intervention in individual life, including in in what we might think of as a positive way in terms of sort of welfare, state support, um, healthcare, stuff like that. And and indeed, the discourse of health and discourse of policing obviously cross at, at points. So is it useful to wonder why there are things that are or aren't done by police forces? Yes, it is. And I think that probably enables us to to pick up what might have been behind your your first question when you you referenced uh, 1829 um because 1829 was an important year because that's the that's the the moment that the the first professional uh police forces are created in in Britain and that's where you get the the influence of Sir Robert Peel and the idea of the bobby named after Sir Robert Peel and and that moment is is important um because Firstly, it encourages a narrative that is is quite common, which is that, you know, there's no real policing in Britain prior to 1829. There's no professional police forces, and so we can't talk about policing in Britain before 1829. I think that's just just a mistake, as for reasons that I've probably just explained. Um, but it's important for a, a number of other reasons because what happens in after after 1829 is a very slow process in in which all, a lot of the activities and functions that were once conducted under the name of police gradually start getting uh, separated out from the professional police forces that are created at, at that point so for example you know what was once known as medical police uh becomes known in, in uh, as different things but for example uh, social health and then eventually the health service 
the, the police function of managing drainage systems, organizing, making sure that the streets were clean enough, making sure that the streets were lit, starts going under a different, different terms, such as um, public health. Things such as the police of poverty, right? Historically, policing was centrally organized around, centrally focused on organizing uh, the poor, making sure that welfare to the poor uh, was provided and so forth. That gets hived off and becomes known as something like uh, welfare or eventually uh, social security. The policing of the market, the, the main making sure that uh, bread wasn't too expensive gets handed over to uh, different bodies and you get the emergence of things like you know food standards agencies and so forth okay so you get a kind of uh, a kind of functional differentiation within the the original uh, unified police powers okay that's a that's a process that that takes a long time and there is a sense in which it is never fully achieved and it's never fully achieved, and you can see the way it's never fully achieved in, in, in a number of ways. The most important is that all of the institutions concerned with order in the most general sense uh, that go under different terms, uh, such as you know, welfare or um, public health and so forth, they're all closely connected with what now count as the professional police force. They work incredibly closely, hand in hand, with the professional police forces. Um, and that goes also for, for various civil society organizations, to use that term. I don't particularly like the term, but let's use it. It's a shorthand. People seem to, to understand what it means, right? So if you think about the way insurance companies operate, or football clubs operate. They're all operating in very, very close tandem with professional police forces to the point at which you might want to say, well, actually, they can't actually function without engaging in precisely the things that police forces insist that they should be engaging with. So it's at this point, that I think, you kind of do really need to hold on to a, a unified concept of, of, of state power and therefore a unified idea a unified concept of policing in in general in order to understand what those professional forces uh, do it's quite difficult i think for someone who isn't used to thinking about police in this way to kind of grasp the set that how wide the concept goes and i think it's the way i found into this in your work was that there are these early theorists of police for them police brings together what we would think of as policing today, you know, police power. It starts at the same time as you get kind of free market economy, uh, you know, start, you know, the idea of the free market begins to, to, to spring up. And there's this perspective about incorporating what we would think of as the domain of the police today into a sort of, you know, almost a sort of general concern for a sort of total science uh, of human society. There's this kind of almost constellation of ideas, sort of police, policy, um, political economy, all derived, of course, you know, from this, this single kind of Greek word, polis. Obviously, all these ideas sort of hang together in, in, in some way. And I wonder whether, it's, whether there's something just to, to get more concrete there about like how the modern concept emerges from that kind of vast and totalizing sense of a concern about a science of human society. Yeah, sure. Okay, there's a lot in that question. Let's just go to your very starting point, um, because you're, I think you're trying to ask me to unravel some of the history in order to help people grasp 
um, this idea of police, right? You began by saying it's it's going to be difficult for people to grasp this idea of police, and I I I take your point. I would just before going to the some of the history, it's worth thinking about if a listener to this is having trouble grasping it, one might ask them to think about what they do, what they would do, were they to be driving on the motorway and come across um, a, a flock of sheep blocking the motorway. And one could think of other equally absurd examples. Yeah? And, the, and the, the, the truth is people phone the police, right? This is one reason why um, so many phone, I mean, phone calls, you know, roughly 80, 85% of phone calls to police stations are nothing to do with a crime that has been committed or a problem of law. They're to do with something that someone has discovered is, is somewhat disorderly, to go back to my original point about the, the fabrication of order, and therefore needs to be rectified, right? Order needs to be reimposed. And it's important to recognize that culturally, generally, socially, we, we presuppose that it's the police institution that should be doing that, while simultaneously holding on to the idea that the police is about crime control and law enforcement. So there's something in the culture that actually, almost like a cultural unconscious that knows that the police is there to deal with anything that, that, that seems to be disorderly, and that that makes it perfectly fine to phone them up and ask them to deal with something. Um, so yes, I get the point that it's, it's difficult to grasp. But on the other hand, there are many, many millions of people out there who phone police stations for reasons nothing to do with a crime or a law being broken. <laughs> okay. Um, but the thing about the history is is important because, in a sense, prior to this this emergence of professional police forces, the police theorists didn't find any of what I've just said a problem, right? There's a long history of police science, Polizeiwissenschaft, or a, a term that was used at the time called cameralism, which theorizes policing, and it theorizes policing by imagining the police function not simply as dealing with crime or enforcing laws, although it saw that that was part of the police function, but with a far more general mandate to ensure order. This meant that the police were expected to intervene whenever something disorderly took place. And the important point that I want to get out of that eventually is to say that, look, you know, the most fundamental form of all of the most fundamental form of disorder is people not working. And that is also true now when you listen to senior police officers talking about the problems in local communities. It's, you know, get these buggers to work, right? Now, historically, the police mandate was enormous. Crime control, yes. Law enforcement, sure. But also bridge building, street lighting, sumptuary legislation about what could or couldn't be worn on certain days of the week, um, certain you know uh, assumptions about what could or couldn't be done at certain festivities, uh, making sure that the, 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 pr the price of grain or the price of bread was the right price and so forth. Okay? And this massive, this wide remit is precisely why policing at the time was also understood as a form of political economy because it was central to the, the creation of a, 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 newly, a new social order that's emerging gradually over decades, over centuries, which will eventually become the market. Right? It takes time. It requires certain things to be put in place. Um, one of those things is the creation of a, of a, of a laboring class. 
Yeah. So you're absolutely right. I think you used the phrase total science. I think that was your phrase. Yeah. yeah you're absolutely yeah, yeah. right. The police science was a total science. It was a total science of, if you like, political administration. It was a science which was meant to not only be a, be able to advise statesmen, politicians, monarchs, and so, and, and so forth about how to manage the, the whole order, but it was also designed to be a total science that would have knowledge of that order and knowledge of what was necessary for that order and knowledge of what was, what was, any, what was, what was a potential threat to that order, which is why I think you, you finished your point about the origins of the term police in polis, which is why in one sense it, it, that connection is there because, if you like, the original police science was, I guess you could say, the fundamental political theory, the fundamental political economy. Without police science, we wouldn't have capitalism and we wouldn't have the state's ability to, to, to manage capitalism and to ensure that threats to capitalism are not, are not too powerful. I mean, that's it. That's exactly exactly what I was interested in. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the thing that emerges so strongly from from your work in, in, in some ways is that is, is how much the police power is, is a power of making and enforcing class. It's so concerned with that. And I think it comes out really strongly. And perhaps you could tell us just a little bit about the, the role that vagrancy plays in the concerns of kind of early um, police and policing theorists. Yes, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think in one sense, you can't understand policing, police power, without the concept of, of vagrancy or some, some associated term um, for those, those states that don't have that specific concept. Um, and I trace this back to, well, in a sense, to the collapse of feudalism and the gradual rise of commercial order and the growth of, of capitalism. And what happens when, in, in that period, that long period, is you get peasantry thrown off the land um, and that peasantry needs needs to be made into a a laboring class what will eventually become the working class what will eventually become a class that is working for a wage and to do that they had to be policed into being that class to do that any form of subsistence other than the wage had to be gradually eradicated now there are various forms of subsistence that one could one could think about. Um, this is where, for example, one could consider the enclosures movement as as part of a police project. Yeah, the idea that more and more vast swathes of land are turned over into private property from being common property meant that workers could no longer live off of the land, no longer pick wood, no longer pick fruit, no longer grow vegetables, no longer uh, let the uh, small herd feed, for example. If you take away those forms of subsistence, then you're going to gradually push people more and more into the towns and cities where they're going to find work as wage laborers. So you could think of the enclosures movement as a massive police operation. But vagrancy is important because, of course, one of the ways in which you could define a vagrant is that a vagrant is someone who is avoiding labor, right? They're just wandering around, living hand to mouth, begging, thieving, whatever it might be. And this is an affront, right? It's an affront to, to capital. It's an affront to capitalism because not only are they, are they not working, but they were also seen as part of the general kind of social threat 
to the, the, the new social order that's emerging. And so over a period of, of two or three centuries, you get a whole series of vagrancy laws designed to put an end to vagrancy. Now, one can think of these in different ways. Marx uses this lovely term that I like, which is the term systematic colonization, right? The systematic colonization of the world in the name of capital. Um, but I think what's, what, what, what one way to understand it is a massive police operation to ensure that capitalism is, is, is created and recreated and maintained through the political management of the, the figure of the vagrant. The other thing about the vagrant is that what vagrancy law does is it generates for police, and even now with professional police forces, or especially now with pro professional police forces, it generates for them a substantial amount of discretionary power, right? The, the suspicion, and I use that term deliberately, right, because there's a whole problem with, you know, how police use the idea of suspicion to stop and search people, right? sus, sus laws and the like. The very existence of any kind of police suspicion that someone may be a vagrant, right? And that suspicion could be, well, they were just sitting on a park bench for too long, or they were, I saw them wandering around town center for too long, right? They, would wander, they weren't buying anything in the shops. And so anything, more or less anything, um, can be used to stop question, uh, search someone for being a vagrant. And of course, that, that's part and parcel of a, a, a general problem that we have with discretionary powers on the police. And we could talk a little bit more about that if you, if you like. Um, but it's, it's important because it really, really um, gets, to the, gets to the core of, of contemporary problems with, with policing. It's always interesting when, when there's yet another uh, police shooting in America, which is basically more or less every day now, right? Two or three a day. It's always worth asking why that person was stopped. And it's often not clear because, of course, the, the real news item for, for most people is the, fact, the sheer fact that someone's been shot, right, by the, by the police. But very often it's to do with acts that could be described as vagrant acts, selling single cigarettes, using a forged 20-pound note. These are acts of, of subsistence that come from not engaging in wage labor. If this person wasn't selling single cigarettes, if this person wasn't using a forged $20, $20 bill, they would have to go out and work. Yeah, I mean, this, this account lets us connect. Um, you know, one of the things that, that has been really interesting over the last couple of years, as you say, this is kind of huge rise of this movement in the States, which has meant people looking for accounts of why the US police exist as they do. And therefore, you've got these really, uh, you know, strong accounts of the emergence of you know, various US police forces from, um, you know, slave catcher patrols, right? Um, and then this story gets imported into Britain. So you've got British activists talking about kind of the slave power origins of, of policing in the United States. But actually, once you start thinking about the police power and vagrancy as kind of central to, to this kind of class making power, actually, those two accounts, you know, do seem to connect, actually, they do seem to have something uh, in common. Well, they do. Um, I think there is a fundamental commonality. 
Um, but it's it's heavily inflected with with a question of race and in particular racist policing in the United States. You know, so the histories of police power in in the states stress absolutely correctly the 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 historical significance of the slave patrol but what often then happens is that the story then goes well so because of the emergence of policing in the slave patrol this explains why the police are are racist now and and that that becomes the focus okay um and there is some truth in that but the problem is that that becomes that becomes the focus and so Policing is understood solely through the lens of of race, and I think that's it. It poses difficult questions for us, right? Because if we're trying to think about police power in general terms, we have to perhaps register the fact that that lens of analysis isn't going to work for a whole range of other states, for a start. Secondly, we might need to register the fact that that. If races had never been invented, um, policing certainly would have been invented, right? Um, and the third thing is, I think we need to situate, and this is where they do converge, the arguments do converge, which is what I think you were getting at, is we need to think of, of, of slave patrols, um, not solely through the lens of race, but, but through the lens of the policing of a system of exploitation, Right, that slavery was a system of exploitation that was integral to the development of early capitalism, and that's how we can then bring them back together. But the whole that whole picture is complicated by the sheer the the, the sheer horror of of the the kind of levels of racist policing that now take place in the United States. Right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, and I think maybe you know another way of thinking about this, I think, or, or developing thinking on this is is to pick up what you were saying about um, discretion and discretionary power. Right, because it, you know, when I first read this book quite a few years ago now, <laughs> I don't really want to think about that. Um, but yeah, one of the bits that really, really blew my mind is this: is you have a long section on, on um, discretion and police illegality, and it, it, it's really shaped my view of how the police operate in relation to the law ever since. And in particular, has given me a sort of enduring scepticism of claims that actually the problem is an insufficient application of the rule of law to the police, right? So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what discretion is exactly in the operation of police power. You started to a bit there, but maybe about how, it, how it's developed um, and maybe how, it, how the use of discretionary power then feeds back into an expansion uh, of the role of the police in, in, in legal terms. So that's a good question. Let me just... Um begin by being, if you like, at the opposite end of the analysis, the other side of the analysis from discretion, because discretion takes us to to the kind of detail, the minutiae of police encounters right on the street. And I want to kind of just go to the other side of the analysis. And one of the things I try and do in the book and the introduction uh, to the, the new issue is to give examples um, example after example of political theorists, police scientists, uh, lawyers, police lawyers, uh, senior police officers themselves, judges, um, all of whom have made the same point time and again, which is that the police power is without limit, right? It is without parameters. It is 
um, amorphous. It is expansive, and it has to be amorphous and expansive. And to try and specify police powers, to try and delimit them, to try and kind of list them one by one, is impossible. Right now, the number of people who have said this is enormous. Right, you know whether it's 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 Montesquieu, Montesquieu as a as a liberal political theorist, or or senior senior lawyers, um, police lawyers, judges, and so forth. The number of, of uh, is is so large that we have to take them seriously. And I think often when people are thinking about policing, they don't take them seriously because to take them seriously is actually quite scary. <laughs> Right, because I think they give the game away. I think they're telling us the truth yeah. about the police powers. Okay, and to take them at their word leaves us feeling hopeless and helpless, and that is scary. Okay, um, so I think there's a reason that people, that a lot of writers on police, haven't dealt with this. But I think we have to deal with the, with this. Now, the reason they all hold that view is straightforward, right? They say, basically, if we started trying to delimit them, uh, policing would be impossible, okay? So now we get into the, if you like, the liberal mythology around, well, you know, policing operating with the rule of law. Yes, we can specify them. Yes, we can hold the police to certain levels of democratic accountability and so forth. But this is where I think we then now go to the other end of the spectrum, which is the, the, the discretionary moment, right? The moment of the police encounter and it's in precisely that kind of the particular nature of the the, the moment of the police counter the, the police encounter that the kind of limitless <laughs> limitlessness of police powers comes into uh into view right why are you stopping what what reason are you stopping me well the honest answer is i don't need a reason to stop you right but i can make up a reason if you want okay so what is it you were moving too fast no, I wasn't. Okay, you were moving too slow. No, I was standing still. Okay, well, then you were standing still. Well, why is that a problem? Well, standing still is suspicious, right? I'm, suspi I'm suspicious of what you're doing. Okay, well, I wasn't standing still. I was about to go for a run. Well, running is... Why are you running near the shops? Why are we... Okay? So we're in a situation in which someone can be stopped, questioned, searched, and possibly arrested for standing still, moving too fast, moving too slowly. That's the discretionary power. That's the, the, the moment of discretionary power, which brings into stark reality the amorphous, expansive, limitless nature of policing. Now, what was interesting about COVID, if we can talk just for a moment about COVID. So historically, this, this amorphous, expansive, limitless nature of police power was, was only really clear to certain communities essentially working class communities and black communities, okay? If you ask working class people about this, they'll go, yeah, we know that, right? Because that's what we encounter every day. If you ask black people about this, they say, yeah, we know that. That's what we encounter every day. And that, of course, is what you see with virtually every police killing of a black person in America. This is on the news. It's just a minor encounter. Stop. I'm using my discretion to stop you. And this is, of course, what pisses people off. Sorry to use that. Term, right but and that's partly how the violence escalates so out of that you get an argument about discrimination right the discriminate discriminatory 
nature of a lot of police activities. And this is where you get a kind of liberal reformist response, which is to say, okay, we can take the discrimination out of the picture, right? We, with some better training, right, of police officers, some better equalities training, right? So send them to those workshops and they'll behave better around people who aren't so much like them, okay? And of course, discretion and, and discrimination have, have similar roots in terms of, so it's, it's important that that emerges. What was interesting about COVID, to go to that point, in those early days of, of 2020 and the early lockdown period, was the extent to which this discriminatory forms of discretion, this, this discretion that revealed the amorphous, expansive, limitless nature of police power, came into the world of the middle class. And so you got people standing there on you know, BBC News going, well, it's outrageous. We were just sitting on a bench. <laughs> well, what, if we can't sit on a bench, then they need to specify that. We were just eating a sandwich in the park. If we can't, can we eat a sandwich in the park? The, we, the politicians need to make this clear. The police need to make this clear. Can we or can we not eat a sandwich in the park? And the answer how, it coming from the police is, well, we're not going to tell you whether you can eat a sandwich in the park or not, because we need to we need to have the power to determine whether eating that particular sandwich in this particular park on that particular day at this particular time in that particular company is acceptable or not. That's discretion. And it was interesting that it, as soon as it entered into the, the world of the middle class, you know, kind of, you know, a couple nice middle class couple having a walk in the park and suddenly finding themselves stopped by the police, that became a news item. Right. And of course, what that was being encountered there was, you know, a, a middle class version of, of something that working class and black people have known for a very, very uh, long time. So discretion in that sense is fundamental to the police power. Right? Without it, the police simply cannot function. Near the end of the book, you, you say that um, all roads in the concept of police lead to the state, right? That, that you know, and, and that we should think about police power as, as, as you know, basic exercise of sovereignty. And obviously that does seem to connect us to, to a long line of thinking about the state, state power, and especially, you know, states of emergency, right? So the state in the state of emergency, um, you know, takes on the ability to kind of uh, uh, act outside of or beyond the law. And this seems so obviously the case when reading your work that, that it surprises me that it's not more central to contemporary accounts of what the state is, what the state does. Do you have a sense of why that might be? I mean, why is there so, so little kind of theoretical exploration of that link, that link kind of sovereignty, the state and policing? I mean, if, if those concepts were as central as they seem, seem as they should be, you know, surely our thinking about politics would change quite significantly. Yeah, I think that's a very, um, it's an interesting question. It's quite remarkable that uh, what we might call, I guess, mainstream political theory that deals with arguments about sovereignty, um, arguments about the state, arguments about property, even um, arguments about liberty. Um, it's remarkable that actually mainstream political theory has virtually nothing to say about uh, police, policing. It actually doesn't really ever engage with the police concept. Um, and I think that's, that's interesting and significant. It's for a number of reasons. I mean, the first is that what that has tended to do is it meant is that it has meant that a lot of kind of critical engagement with uh, the concept of police 
and thinking about policing has been done outside of uh, political thought. Um, it's 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 been done within criminology or police science, and that 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 creates problems because they take yeah, their starting point is policing as opposed to something else, for example, uh, sovereignty or sovereign power or something. It's also a, a real kind of shame because there are all sorts of um, interesting concepts that one encounters when one thinks about police that really requires broader thinking about uh, about sovereignty and sovereign power. I'll give you an example that we, you know, we haven't touched on, which is the idea of immunity, right? the idea of police immunity from prosecution for certain acts carried out by police officers in the line of their, their duty. Um, and this is a major, major problem, okay, because it's the fundamental reason that so many police killings, police acts of violence, police torture go un, unpunished, right, because police are granted immunity for, for, for prosecution. And that immunity emerges from a long history of sovereign power because it's essentially a modern version of the kind of immunity that was granted to diplomats and ambassadors hundreds of years ago when they were traveling abroad in order to engage in diplomatic missions and so forth. Right? It's the same immunity in, in effect that, that soldiers have in, in, in their line of work. We could gain a great deal, for example, by thinking in more general terms about sovereignty when thinking about what police are doing, right? They have something attached to them which comes out of centuries of sovereign power, namely this idea of immunity. It gives them a certain protection, and it gives them a protection as agents of the state. It's a real shame. It's been a real loss, I think, that mainstream political theory hasn't engaged with um, with with policing and it's a real shame i think that actually a lot of those that thinking does take place in in um in isolation in criminology and police studies in isolation from from political thought i will say also in addition just to sorry just to elaborate on this point a bit um that is about to get a lot worse and it's about to get a lot of wor worse because right now this year there's a the a launch of new major degree programs as part of the training of new police constables, right? So the idea is that eventually police constables, police officers at the lowest levels will be graduate officers, right? That they'll not only be trained police officers, but they'll be trained with a degree. So they'll spend whatever it is, 20% of their first three years of training undertaking a degree, right? In British universities. And so British universities have set up various consortia in order to undertake this training. So if you haven't noticed, if you look at the jobs pages for higher education, there aren't many jobs around. But if you can do lecturing in police studies, then you got a load of jobs to choose from, right? Because there are a lot of them being advertised right now. Now, what's interesting about these degree programs is that they are, they are being carried out almost entirely in an intellectual bubble within the university. They have absolutely zero engagement with, for example, political theory courses that might get the trainee officers to think about sovereignty or the state or property or violence, for example, or law. What is law? What is violence? And so forth. Those kinds of questions that we expect um, politics graduates to engage with. They have these courses have no engagement with the history of policing. Right. So there's nothing there's nothing that's going to be put into the police officer's mind to go, well, 
where do I come from? What is my purpose? What is my function? Even if they weren't critical, right? But intellectually, I think it's quite interesting that we're now reproducing this very same problem, this problem of the police concept being separated from, you know, political studies, social studies, historical studies, and we're recreating it. I, I had no idea. That's totally fascinating. I now want to go and do some digging on this because that's, wow, <laughs> really, really hard to, to figure out. So like, if you read sort of police studies, sort of sociology of the police, kind of police theory, kind of all that stuff that happens at that kind of border between sociology and criminology, you know, and I'm thinking here of, you know, you mentioned him a couple of times in the book, but he's not a sort of mainstay of your attention is someone like Robert Reiner, who is probably like the foremost sort of social democratic sort of theorist of, of policing, sort of analyst of policing, you know, and I think there are kind of significant conceptual limits to, to his work in, in some ways. And then at times I'm surprised by how kind of stringent it is about, you know, the culture of policing, about uh, the way that the police actually function as opposed to, to the claim of functioning. But, but what strikes me and what struck me, so one of the reasons I was thinking about this was to do with the, the brief interlude when there was a, you know, vaguely left-wing British political party. You know, one of the places where the thinking didn't seem to me to have evolved at all um, was on policing. And, you know, partly because, you know, no left-wing political party wants to touch policing for, for fear of being accused of being soft on crime. But, like, there was historically a sort of social democratic policing model that picks up the stuff that you're talking about that says, okay, policing is actually related to political economy and therefore we have to think of it in tandem with kind of social development, uh, et cetera, et cetera, whatever. Um, and it tends to, you know, look at, at the question of policing as to, to do with kind of funding, basically, um, both extra, you know, external to the police and kind of internal to the police as well, that it's, you know, well-funded police force is part of a functioning social democratic state, it has less to, to do with thinking about like what the shape of the state should be, whether there should be a state at all, for instance, whatever. But, but it doesn't seem to me that that kind of social democratic tradition of police thinking, you know, barely seems to have any political purchase at all these days. Uh, it's all this, you know, like the, the, absolutely hegemonic absolutely dominant uh, approach to, to policing is just one of like crime is something that happens out there uh, and it is a, a quality of particular people and it needs to be controlled so you know do, do you think that there's a, a hope for a kind of better discourse on this stuff or a more informed enlightened discourse on this or is it you know is it dystopia all the way yeah that's a good question i mean i'm we might need to distinguish between the debate that's developed in the last year or so in in the states and the debate over here because it's um it's quite striking i mean your reference to social democratic parties and to opposition parties um is appropriate i think uh, and it's it's even more significant now so you know last year there was you know this huge uh, explosion of discussion about defund the police abolish the police what are the police for um, and you know, it was very noticeable that opposition, the the major opposition in the in the UK, just went no, no, we're not going there, right? Um, and actually, you know, a lot of groups also didn't go there. A lot of other groups didn't go there. Um, that shouldn't be a surprise, right? And it shouldn't be a surprise, not because they are peculiarly British, although there might be something in that. Um, I think it's not a surprise because ultimately, asking those questions poses a fundamental problem to the social democratic imagination, right? And it poses a fundamental problem because to ask after 
policing in that way um, is to ask under about the the nature of capital, the nature of order, the nature of the state. Um, so some of those debates in the U.S. are probably going to end up going nowhere. Okay, they will um, be be bought off in various ways, or they may be transformations to to um, to the funding situation and so forth. And you know, they they may be things that are good that come out of that. Who knows? Um, the bigger question is, you know, what do you do with a with a, a slogan like you know, abolish the police? What is police abolition? Um, and here, I think, is is the issue. The reasons the social democratic imagination won't go there is because abolishing police, the demand to abolish police, in my view, is a demand to abolish capital, right? So <laughs> it's an even bigger <laughs> challenge than abolishing the police. <laughs> the fact that people are simply articulating it is 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 amazing and wonderful. You know, because, you know, even if that never happens, they will have still asked fundamental questions that that lead them in that direction. And that's 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 good. Right. We should we should be pleased about that as a development. It's kind of astonishing, actually, in some ways that, that it really is the last 18 months that, that this stuff has exploded. It brings lots of stuff together. And one of the things it exposes is actually like how because one of the things that's striking about the movement in the United States is that it's very young. Right. Like there's lots of very young people involved in that movement. And these are all kids who have grown up, you know, who are, who are my age or younger. You know, I'm older than, than most of them. These are all people who have grown up absolutely within, you know, under the, the, the thrall of the sort of neoliberal state. Which means that the sort of you know, the question of political imagination or the expanse of political imagination is you know, is, is very difficult because which means you get these kind of weird kind of alloys of demands. Like on the on the one hand, like the slogan uh, of abolish or defund, and then kind of these sort of this reaching for sort of the question of representation or whether you can improve the police by sort of changing the sort of model of policing. It, you know, it's the most exciting development on on the question of kind of policing. <laughs> yeah, you know, certainly in my lifetime, I, I haven't seen a movement like this in terms of the police. So, you know, I, my criticisms, if criticisms they are, uh, come from a place of you know, genuine interest in the movement. But it, it feels to me like people are reaching for demands and the demands that are out there, the demands that they have immediately to hand are those that are, you know, within the kind of discourse of, you know, political liberalism with, with, you know, with which they have grown up because that's the only game in town. Um, and it, you know, it would be no bad thing for there to be functioning accountability boards or something like that for police forces. Don't get me wrong, um, you know, stress on functioning. Um, but, but you know, do, do you see what I mean? That like that in a sense, you know, this this yeah. is that. No, I, I absolutely, I, I agree absolutely. I, I think you know the the problem with that social democratic imaginary um, and the, the the kind of writers that you 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 cite is that however critical they are, and often they are astutely critical, uh, um, is that the, the, that political imaginary only allows them to, to say or think or hope for certain things. And so you get onto the terrain of, of police reform and the idea of more whatever community policing, more policing by consent, less, less discriminatory policing and, and you know, more regulatory boards and so on and so forth. Um, the, the, the difference... Um, I think with you know, police abolition as opposed to police defunding is that there's a sense in which you know, the, the, the slogan is, is way, way in advance of its material conditions. 
right? It's as though, it's as though the, 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 <laughs> the, the imaginary has been revealed to be so delimiting. And so it's gone, right, now that's clearly, that's, that's, that's not enough anymore, right? It's abolished abolish police. And, that, and that's, you know, it's amazing to hear, but there's a sense in which, you know, it, it, it's, it's, um, it's whatever it is, 200 years too early or something. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, generally, generally, the, generally the sky laugh for it when thinking about these things. Well, because in terms of what it would mean to de- de- to abolish police is is you know yeah. it's you know we're not going to have the same society that we have right now without police, right? I don't mean that as in we need police. I mean, what I mean by that is this society right now needs police. What we have to hope for is that we can create a society without police, that we can create a society that does not require this thing called policing, right? That's the that's the beauty of that police abolition slogan. I love that. I love that. I, I just, like, last question for you kind of picks up on 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 really the, the kind of the movement of uh, of that movement as it were like so it's it's easy to see causes for hope with that movement in the united states i wonder if you have a sense about it here as we start to come out of this moment in which as you say um you know perhaps the kind of absurdity of police power or the arbitrariness of police power has been more visible to more people um, even even in the you know even in a state of kind of national um, emergency, which you know like the sort of legitimate grounds for kind of health emergency, obviously. Um, but you know, and then then we had sort of the Sarah Everard vigil here, which I think really kind of brought it brought it front and center. At the same time, like it seems to me that the slant or the direction of the conversation on social order policing crime even but also kind of undesirable um categories of human beings so like non-citizens um you know vagrants migrants etc you know the, the 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 slant of discourse in britain on all this stuff only seems to me to to kind of strengthen um you know the exercise and you know centralization and exercise of, of power through forms of police um so do, do you see any kind of counter movement here well, the thing about you know the Sarah Everard vigil was that you know just before the vigil, the that sense of of anger that one got from as you as you noted young, younger people um, and significantly in this case younger women. Um, you know, I was vaguely hopeful at, at a certain moment that there was a, a parallel emerging that you know where where a response to a particular uh, killing in the states led to a, a massive movement, um, not just justice for George Floyd, but a, a massive movement demanding something happening around police powers. Um, I was when when Sarah was uh, was was first killed, and there was that response. You know, I was thinking, well, wow, th- this may well be a parallel, and I was I was hopeful that that would be the case, and it certainly felt like it. The amount of of anger and, and passion that was was emerging there was was amazing, um, and you know what happened? <laughs> Boy, was it crushed at that vigil, right? I mean, I mean, in a sense, it wasn't because it's clearly still there. 
but it was it was quite significant that um, that the way the the police handled that vigil, you know, the the idea that um, young women holding a vigil for uh, a murdered uh, a, a murdered young woman could be treated in that way was was I thought um, a message <laughs> a message from the, the British state yeah. um, to to young angry people about what will happen to them if they try anything similar. Um, I mean, hopefully it hasn't gone away and it will just re- it will reform in some way and, um, and, and come back. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's sad that that, that moment, that parallel moment that kind of came and, and seems to have gone. Um, I'm just, uh, just in relation to COVID. I mean, I think one, one of the interesting things about COVID will be precisely um, how, you know, new forms of what I like to call medical police, medical policing will coincide with new forms of regulating work, right? That, you know, for all the talk about immunity passports, you know, that might be required for going into a pub or something, what's going to be far more telling, I think, is immunity passports that um, that are required for, you know, getting capital going properly in terms of the workplace, in terms of labour. So I think there is something significant there, but that again is equally probably quite depressing. Well, it's a it's a it's a Navarra tradition to end on a depressing note. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, glad to have been of service. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarra Media from just one pound a month. Head to navarra.media/support or face the consequences. <laughs>